Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on December 14th, 2018 at 9am Eastern Time. So obviously if anything happened in the time after that, after recording this episode, we are obviously unable to cover it. As always, for this season, we are delighted to be sponsored by IB Taurus, who have very generously offered all of you, all of our listeners, a 35% discount on all books in the Middle East and politics section from Bloomsbury.com. Just use the offer code, the discount code, TALKINGIBT19. That's all capital letters, TALKINGIBT, followed by the number 1919. And also, if you or anyone you know is interested in doing a Master's in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, be sure to check out the, that very Master's, which we have on offer here at Royal Holloway University of London. There's a link to it in the description of this podcast. Um, And if you want to find out any information about upcoming episodes or anything we do here with the Talking Terror podcast, be sure to follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast and and follow me at morrison underscore jf. So... That is enough of the the self promotion for one episode, and on with today's um, on with today's episode where I am talking to David Mallet from American University about his excellent research in foreign fighters. I hope that you enjoy it. David, thank you so much for for joining us on Talking Terror today. Oh, hi, John. Thanks for having me on. So, as I said in the in the brief introduction, there your research is has been well known for in recent years about your research on foreign fighters. How did you get involved? How did you get interested in, uh, in looking at this topic? Well, so I actually, speaking of master's programs in security areas, uh, I, I did mine end of the 1990s, you know, 1998, 1999, my master's program. And um, I came out of that feeling like, like the big security threat of the next, of the coming decade. Uh, was going to be basically suicide fundamentalist religious terrorist groups. Uh, they, they'd been successful in influencing elections in Israel uh, in the mid-90s, and I thought this, this is going to be exported to other Western countries. And uh, it's funny, the committee that, that decided whether or not to give me the master's degree was not very imp- impressed by that argument uh, in, in December 1999 that, that we were going to have to worry about groups like al-Qaeda in the coming decade. It was actually a couple of weeks before I found out if I'd even gotten my degree. Um, but, you know, the, the world moved on. I actually, I went on uh, to a job for a few years in, in the U.S. Congress. And when I went back for the Ph.D., you know, all these sort of obscure things I had uh, done my research on for the master's were, you know, were sort of, everybody was an expert. So I was looking for some new topic uh, when I was looking for, to, to start working on the dissertation. And this was, you know, around 2005. And the uh, occupation of Iraq post-invasion wasn't going very well. There were a lot of attacks being conducted by people who were not actually from Iraq. And I thought that was, that was very strange. Uh, you know, why would you go to somebody else's country to become a terrorist? Why wouldn't you just do it in your own country? So I really got interested in that question of, you know, basically why you would, uh, why you would go elsewhere. And I was interested at that point in, in social network analysis. This was still really before social media. Uh, so I thought I would try to conduct some sort of social network analysis, you know, study to, to see what it was that was bringing people to other countries, because I figured it wasn't about their citizenship, it must be some other ties. 
And um, it, it turned out that in, you know, in 2005, there really wasn't any work done on, on, on this question of why people go and fight in other, other people's civil wars. There wasn't even really a name for it. Uh, I like the term transnational insurgents, but nobody knew what I was talking about. Uh, foreign fighters was a little too Fox News for me, but, but you know, people seemed to know what I meant because these, these guys in Iraq were in the news. So I started looking into that, and uh, the dissertation went in, in somewhat different directions because I couldn't get good current data. So I ended up looking more at historical cases and seeing what we could learn from, from the past. And so what can we learn from the past? What, what, has, what did your historical research show you? And where have we seen, um, where have we seen previous uh, proliferation of foreign fighters? So foreign fighters are nothing new. Uh, I was actually surprised how prevalent they are. It turns out that at, at this point, you can document them in at least a quarter of, of the civil wars in the world uh, since Napoleon, really the last 200 years. Uh, certainly they were around before that. There were, there were a lot of uh, private European volunteers in, in the American Revolution uh, and, and elsewhere, other wars in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, like Simon Bolivar had several thousand Britons with him in South America in, in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, but if, if you look at the cases that we look at, there's some, a couple of big groups uh, throughout history. Recently, of course, the, since the 1980s, you, you have a lot of jihadi groups, and there were other jihadis before that. And, and a lot of people think that that's synonymous with foreign fighting, but, it, but it's really not. There are only about half of the foreign fighters even in the world today. And if you look at you know, the past hundred years, there was another movement that was far bigger in terms of numbers of volunteers that lasted twice as long as the jihadis have so far. And that was uh, foreign fighters from various Marxist groups, starting with the, the Russian Revolution and going all the way uh, to the end of the Cold War. Um, um, where, where were they going? What, uh, what, uh, what military, uh, what military, what, what wars were they fighting in or where was it? Yeah, so the most famous one probably is, is the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, right? The International Brigades, and, and everybody seems to know about Ernest Hemingway, uh, who actually drove an ambulance uh, with, with the communist group there, uh, but, you know, George Orwell and others. And there were, there were something like 50,000 foreign fighters in Spain in, in, in less than three years. So when people say, oh, Syria is unprecedented, no, it's, it's not. Uh, so some more recent re projects that I've been doing on just on communist foreign fighters specifically shows that even uh, even Spain wasn't unique. There were there were at least fifty thousand and possibly far more than that uh, foreign fighters uh, in, in the Russian Civil War, Russian Revolution. Although a lot of them were were prisoners of war from the, the Central Powers in World War One before that, so they weren't they weren't necessarily recruited in. Uh, but there were there were a good 40,000, 40, 50,000 in the Chinese Civil War in the 1940s. Uh, and, but you could find them, you know, depending on how you define foreign fighters, you could find tens of thousands uh, of, of Cubans in Angola in the 1970s and 80s. You could find a lot of foreign volunteers uh, on, on the Marxist side in Nicaragua and Central America in, in the 1980s as well. Uh, diaspora Chinese, you know, throughout Southeast Asia with communist groups sponsored by the, the People's Republic. Um, throughout the, the mid-20th century around Malaysia. So it, it was a movement that persisted for, for decades. It sort of ended uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and I think a lot of the state sponsorship dried up, and this was also the time that the jihadi groups were, were emerging, so I think we, we tended to forget about these Marxists. But there's also a new generation of, of Marxist volunteers now with, with the YPG fighting against ISIS. Yeah. So it, it's a movement that 
seemed to go away, but it, it, it might be coming back. So with that whole historical context, what do you think are the core lessons that we can learn from that, that we could apply today? Or is, or, or is it, are there significant differences uh, that, that we should, should be aware of as well? Well, that's one thing that's really struck me. When I, when I started doing my dissertation, uh, I different historical case studies, I was just going to do a compare and contrast of how are religious foreign fighters and ethnic foreign fighters and ideological foreign fighters different. And, and it's turned out that they're really just not that different at all, that they're recruited in the same ways, they recruit the same types of people using the same mechanisms. They always tell them you're part of some broader community beyond your citizenship, and that's, that's under threat. We're all going to be wiped out. And you have a duty to do something about it. And, and you know, we can build a better society uh, if we win and you come join us. But really, it's, it's important for you to fight. That's why we can't really pay you. But there's greater rewards uh, in, in not being wiped out. Uh, so that's been really consistent. And, and the thing that's been interesting to me is that there are a lot of things about, about, about Daesh, about some other groups, that uh, we think, oh, this is really novel and unique. And, and it's not. Uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago, uh, Marxists were, were going to the Soviet Union, were going to China, uh, not just as for, not just as combatants, not just as fighters in the war, but, but they were being engineers and as doctors being told, come build a worker's paradise. You'll have opportunities that you don't have in, in, this, in the corrupt West. Uh, they were getting them to bring their entire families along. They were uh, trying to recruit Western women. Uh, they offered them people special housing and special shopping privileges for things that they couldn't, that locals couldn't buy. And you know, we, we see this today, and we think, oh, who are you know, who who are these women going? How are their children being raised there? Um, they're, they're bringing people in not as foreign fighters, but as as you know, immigrants. So maybe we can't really call them foreign fighters. And this is really, it's nothing new. So I think that there are a lot of lessons that we can learn through from history. Uh, one of them is that most of these foreign fighters or, or foreign volunteers, if, if you prefer, who went off to, to try to build uh, you know, Marxist utopias, uh, mo most of them actually didn't end up staying around for the long term. Most of them went back to their home countries and they, they were watched for a while. Uh, sometimes they were, they were in legal trouble for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but very few of them ever posed threats for terrorism at home uh, or, or really were engaged in militant activity after that. And so we'll get on to why people would go um, uh, and become a foreign fighter. But why would is there an, is are there key reasons why people would leave? So we're we're going to touch on returnees later on. But you talk about those those individuals who come back. Why were they leaving? Was it disillusionment or what was it? It's probably disillusionment. Um, I mean, certainly the living conditions were not as good or necessarily what they were promised. There was also a lot of suspicion, right? We know that today, uh, Westerners who, who would go off to, to Syria would be distrusted. Uh, but the same sort of thing happened if, if you would show up in China uh, 70 years ago. So there's, there's always been this tension between, uh, between foreign volunteers and, and locals. Um, there's perhaps a sense of superiority Again, whether it's jihadis, whether it's Marxists, with any group, the, the people who come in feel like they're fighting this, this important uh, war to the end and that uh, they're really ideologically committed. And, and locals have more pragmatic day-to-day -day concerns. And, and there's always a tension between the two groups. So I, I think that, that there's been a lot of that in the past. Um, one thing which, which I think we're seeing a lot of today with Syria, both in Europe, uh, but also in Southeast Asia, something that, that I don't see in the past. Uh, I, 
because I think it just wasn't documented, is there's a lot of PTSD involved with foreign fighting. It's, it's really foreign fighters are not treated well, usually by, by local groups. They're used as cannon fodder if, if they don't have really valuable skills. And I think that contributes a lot to disillusionment, too. Uh, but also perhaps a reason why people disengage after they return. And where are you seeing the evidence of this? So where where have you found this about the, the PTSD? Uh, well, I spent a few years working in Australia, so I had some, some exposure to uh, what was going on in Indonesia and Malaysia. And uh, there were people who were brought back uh, and you know, not not exactly treated, I think, gently by the system, but were determined to be incapable, uh, mentally incapable of, of standing trial in, in criminal proceedings because they were so... Uh, so psychologically damaged from their experiences in Syria. Yeah, this is definitely something that that needs to be uh, taken into account of, especially when you you look at uh, disarmament, demobilization, or and reintegration, or DDR, as as we talk about uh, as uh, within this area. But before we we get on to issues like that, what is it that someone who becomes a foreign fighter have you seen a key difference between? the type of person that would become a foreign fighter versus someone who would uh, stay behind and become involved in domestic uh, political violence? Well, so just like terrorists uh, overall, we, we don't have uh, you know a clear sense of which particular individuals are, are going to become foreign fighters. I could make you at this point, uh, uh, I suppose, an overview of the type of person who becomes a foreign fighter that doesn't involve profiling based on a religion or an ethnicity. And... Historically speaking, people who become foreign fighters are, you know, they, they tend to be roughly university age males, uh, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of first or second generation immigrants, uh, but they're people, but, but not exclusively. They're, they're people who tend to feel disconnected from their broader national civil societies, but are usually very involved in subgroups, uh, whether it's, it's, it's ethnic or, or religious or ideological. It can be workers, you know, labor groups. They can be the ethnic uh, kids' summer camps. Um, one thing that I'd noticed in some of the uh, some of the Americans who fought in Spain in the 1930s, for whom they're pretty uh, well established, you know, biographical profiles, there were high uh, rates of, of divorce uh, with, with some of their families. So I think a lot of them latch onto these movements as surrogate families. Uh, if they're immigrants, perhaps they're, they're disconnected from broader from their extended families as well, uh, and that's why these identities are worth fighting for. Uh, most of them don't have criminal records, but they're involved in militant politics. And, you know, it, it's, it's the sort of person, I think, who joins any mass movement. Uh, some of them are, are probably told that they can be heroes. Uh, they can engage in maybe antisocial behavior that they would want to do anyway. Uh, but, but this time they can, they can you know, save the day. There's a lot of very gendered appeals in, in every case uh, to, in recruiting foreign fighters to, to young men that, that they're women. Uh, in their community who are, who are being mistreated and sometimes it's it's all too true and sometimes you know they, they just make up atrocity stories that are pretty similar anyway but i think this, this sort of component of, of make your life meaningful has always been there and with regards to the recruitment from the organization themselves be it daesh or 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 other groups are they as you were talking about within the historical cases do you see them focusing in on a specific type of foreign fighter with a specific skill set, um, um, or, or is it more broad in general than that? Well, groups always like to get people with, with skills, right? Uh, this, has been, this has been a great value. Sometimes it's made the difference. Uh, a, a not-jihadi case, right? Thousands of, of diaspora Jews um, 
volunteered in the Israeli War of Independence in the 1940s, and they made a big effort to try to get, and it was only a year or two afterwards, so it wasn't too difficult, uh, seasoned World War II combat veterans. Uh, pilots are always, people with piloting skills are, are always welcomed by every group uh, that recruits foreign fighters in, in, in the modern era. So if you have skills, uh, certainly you're welcome. You're, you're more likely to, you know, not be used as cannon fodder. Uh, but a lot of times volunteers will come in with, with no training. And we, we see this with, with Daesh, but we saw this in Spain in the 1930s too. People were sent over the trenches, never having held a gun before. And it, it didn't go very well for them because they went in with, with this attitude that I'm here to make a difference and I'm going to save the day. But beyond that, uh, there wasn't practically a lot they could contribute. So it probably makes sense that local commanders use them as cannon fodder. Yeah. And it's it's getting this kind of understanding, not just of of who's being recruited, but we need to understand how they're being used and and how the groups are, are how they view them. But what we want to... What I want to focus on the majority of the interview today is research that you've published uh, recently enough looking at returnees, people who have returned from being foreign fighters, and the question about do they pose a threat of being engaged in domestic terrorism. And you talk about, in within this, you, you analyze uh, potential lag time between uh, returning and uh, engagement in domestic terrorism. Um, could you give our listeners just an overview of what the aim of this this piece of research was um, and, and what exactly you feel the core findings were? Shortly after the waves of uh, foreign fighters started going off to Syria, different countries had, had different uh, approaches to how they were going to address the potential of, of people coming back radicalized, people coming back with, with particular skills uh, for fighting, for, for terrorism. So there, there's a real divergence, right? Some countries had uh, very much a DDR approach, is what I would call the, the Danish model. Um, but, you know, the, the UK had, had a different approach of saying that there's a threat uh, that's going to be severe, uh, that it's going to be indefinite, that, that people are going to be radicalized and we can't afford to watch them for decades, so we should strip their citizenship, not let them return. Uh, I was working in Australia uh, at the time. They, they took uh, a similar harsh approach, mostly with the argument of, of cost-effectiveness, that we simply can't afford to surveil people for decades. So there's a debate about, in a literature at this point, about how much of a threat do, do return foreign fighters pose, uh, how likely are they to become terrorists? Are they likely to be more dangerous and effective terrorists if they do? And I want to ask a, a different question and say, let's assume that there is some greater level of threat. H how long does it last? Mm -hmm. if, if somebody's going to become a, a terrorist or attempt to become a terrorist after returning from foreign fighting, do we need to worry about them for, for months, for years? Because that, that's a question that impacts where we direct resources. And also uh, these laws about stripping citizenship because I thought, you know, there, there's some problem. I, I can certainly understand why people would not want to let potential terrorists back into the country. But we've also seen over the years that if you, uh, you know, simply wash your hands and say, hey, foreign fighter, you're somebody else's problem now, that can lead to, to bad consequences as well. And I would put uh, Osama bin Laden forward as exhibit A of what happens when, when we just set them loose on the world stage. And yeah. um, so with regards to your core finding, what... You you were you flagged up uh, the initial six months, the initial six months after someone returns. What is it that you were seeing within your research um, about 
uh, about those six months that made you highlight uh, that this was the important period? So I had no idea what the findings were going to show when, when I started the project. Uh, so Rachel Hayes was a master's student of mine uh, at George Washington University. Uh, we, she did most of the coding on this. We, we had a couple hundred jihadis uh, from the 1980s up till, till the present day who had returned from different conflicts to, to various Western countries. And she was able to get, uh, by, by year for many of them and by month for a lot of them as well, uh, the, the exact number of months, or, or in some cases, number of years, from their most recent return to the time that they either conducted an attack or were arrested preparing to conduct an attack. And it turned out that, that the average time, yeah, it's about four to five months, and, and there's very few of them where it's longer than a year, uh, almost none where it's longer than three years, uh, only one or two, really. And one thing that was interesting to me also was that uh, there's a debate about prisons and radicalization and, and the fact that we're now arresting people and, and maybe there'll be a threat once they get out of prison. And it turns out that even in the, the couple of outliers uh, where people had attempted plots years after returning, prison wasn't a factor. They, they hadn't been in prison. And, and the ones who come back and try something within a couple of months haven't been in prison either. They, they've only been back a short period of time. So one question is, why is it that there is such a short period? Uh, and it, there's really little evidence of, of directed plots, of people being sent back to, to Western countries on missions, specific missions, uh, to, to engage in attacks. And most of the attacks that have come have been you know, in, in these networks, right, that were active in, in France and Belgium. Uh, we have a couple of individuals otherwise. But really, it, it just seems like there's some people who, who come back, uh, are not ad adjusting to perhaps day-to-day -day life uh, and, and decide that they're going to launch an attack. Others actually try to go back and become foreign fighters elsewhere again. So there's, there's this period which we're calling this, this sort of dark window, this, this mm -hmm. critical period in the first six months where it looks like it's important to uh, have increased surveillance with, with security, with law enforcement, uh, to direct reintegration resources. But after that, the threat curve looks like it falls off pretty sharply and, and it can be scaled back and the resources can be put elsewhere. And where does this fit with other research as well? Within it, you raise um, the research that was done by Thomas Heckhammer. How, and in relation, and the, the questions that were raised off the back of, of Thomas's, uh, Thomas's work, but where does your research fit within the, the findings of others uh, in this literature? Yeah, so, you know, again, I, I wasn't looking at the, at the overall ratio of, of returnees to attacks, but the time frame, which is, which is a question that just hadn't been asked so far. Um, I mean, I, I would look at, at the question of, of returnees. I mean, the, the, the study that, that Thomas did that was published in 2013 uh, said you're looking at this ratio of, of one in nine, right, which basically so 11 percent. And he'll say that, that this is taken out of context. It's a maximum likelihood estimate. He wasn't saying that 10% of returnees become foreign fighters, but this was an assumption that was made by, uh, this is the UK you know, report on, on foreign fighters justifying the laws. This is a uh, statistic that's quoted by a lot of governments, and a lot of researchers as well, that you're looking at 10% of, of returnees become, uh, becoming domestic terrorists. Um, there have been other studies, including uh, another one that Heghammer did a couple of years later in the ISIS era saying, it was published in 2015, saying it's, it's probably more like one in about 300, 350, which, which is a lot different than one in 10. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, the, that we're seeing that you do not get 
really high ratios of return of returnees becoming domestic terrorists. Right. We, we're not seeing anything like 10 percent of people coming back from Syria. And there are already hundreds back, thousands back um, becoming domestic terrorists. And so one thing that I think is important to examine with time frames is you can say that, all right, well, they haven't become domestic terrorists yet, but, but who knows what, what they'll do one day. <laughs> and to that, I think it's just sort of a common sense observation to look and say, OK, let's say it's not four to five months. Let's say there's an actual longer lag time that we have to worry about. If that's the case, we should be seeing from past decades, we should be seeing these waves of, of foreign fighters, 10 percent or whatever it is, acting. If, if it's a lag time of something like five years, we should be seeing the early returnees from Syria. Or if it's 10 years, the ones who went to, to Yemen, to, to Somalia. And we, we just aren't seeing these waves crop up many years later either. So I think that the figure of, of something like 10% is, is not being borne out by what we're seeing. And if we break it down uh, even further, your findings, and the overall understanding of, of foreign fighters, and if we look at the the heterogeneity of these foreign fighters. And if you consider, say, something like the amount of time they spend abroad within uh, within the conflict zone, uh, people who spent a long time versus a short time, or other other indicator or other key factor variables like that, are we seeing any significant differences there, or is anything coming up? Well, so there, I think there are a lot of different ways that you could, you could code the data. So Rachel and I looked at their time of immediate return to the time of attack. So, so just the, the last time, I mean, if we coded from the time they had left initially, uh, you'd, you'd probably get different results. We also didn't code people who made multiple trips, right? We only coded their last return uh, and not when they made before. So some, some researchers say, well, the, the 9-11 hijackers, those, those were those years and years of delay. And maybe from their first foreign fighting trip, but not, not from their last foreign fighting trip. Uh, you know that one of the one of the Kawachi brothers from the Charlie Hebdo attacks had been in, had tried to go to Iraq years earlier uh, and had gone to prison, uh, but from the time of their most recent return from Yemen to France before their attack, it was, it was really it was only a couple of months. So there are a lot of different ways you, you, you could code the data. One thing that we did find with, with our approach is that there was no pattern discernible. Uh, from 1980 through through 2015, in terms of the the variation in time changing, the the windows of these lag times were not getting longer or shorter. They were they were consistent across time. So the the data, you know, at least in that regard, appears to be holding up. And one of the things that is mentioned across the literature, and not just across the literature, but when people are talking about foreign fighters, is oh, well, they'll they'll have received battlefield training while they're out. But is there something? It, does that actually prepare them for domestic terrorism, or is, would domestic terrorism be so different to what it would be that those that battlefield training is? And is there an exaggeration of what that battlefield training would be like as well? Well, there have been uh, different studies. Again, the, the Heghammer article from 2013 says that the foreign fighters uh, are more more successful in carrying attacks; they're more lethal. And um, other people, Daniel Byman and some other people said, you know, there really there's no evidence that they've picked up any useful skills. They're, they're you know, using crude bombs. They are doing the sort of mass shootings that, uh, you know, <laughs> we get in the U.S., unfortunately, from people who haven't had any training as, as foreign fighters. So I, I think the, the, the jury might be out on, on whether foreign fighting makes them more dangerous or not. One thing that we've seen over you know, broad history and more recently with jihadis is that uh, having been a foreign fighter makes you 
more effective recruiter or facilitator of, of new foreign fighters. You've got the connections uh, to bring the other people you know who to introduce them to. Uh, you have the credibility of having been there yourself to, to come back and tell stories. So we see this in, in urban centers and in, in rural areas, small villages as well. And it's also one reason why I think that there's a value for CVE purposes of letting returnees who are willing to cooperate with the authorities back in uh, because the ones who come back disgruntled or the ones who come back a real mess uh, with, with PTSD are going to be your, your more most effective advertisement against being a foreign fighter. They're going to be your best counter-messaging, more so than any government public service announcement. And do you see what, where have you seen this being utilized to the best? Uh, or has anyone really utilized the returnees in that way that you have been put, putting forward there? There have been the cases of, of one or two individuals. I think there was one in, in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, who you know has, has uh, come back and said, yeah, I shouldn't have been a jihadi. But there are other groups, right? I mean, the, the standard practice, particularly in Europe, of using former uh, neo-Nazis to, to engage in, in you know, de-radicalization work. Uh, in, in the U.S., you know, if you're convicted of even of homicide uh, through, through drunk driving, uh, you, you're sent off to schools to go tell kids, don't make the mistakes I made as part of your sentence. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that if there, there are people who are, have been begging to come back from Syria saying, I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, you have cases where, especially of, of children, uh, who probably have stories to tell of, of what they experienced. And so, you know, again, you, you probably would have to take them on a case-by-case basis, but I, I think there could, be a real, uh, there could be a real messaging value in, in a real, with the people have the credibility of saying, look, Daesh is not what they tell you it is, and I can tell you from personal experience. Yeah, no, it's definitely something worth worth looking at and worth worth seeing uh, if it's if it's applicable and where it can be applicable as well. Would I be right in saying as well that for the networks of foreign fighters or the network of recruiters within a within a domestic population that they don't want to get involved in domestic criminality or domestic violence because they don't want to be compromising these transnational operations as well? Could that be something that we would be putting them off? Yeah, there's there's some evidence of that. Uh, Timothy Holman had an article out a couple of years ago looking looking at Belgian networks uh, involved in domestic terrorism, and then in the 90s, but also sending the ones that sent people off to Bosnia. And they they uh, you know the the ones that were sending people off to Bosnia did not commit crimes because they did not want to be flagged. Uh, so I, I think you can have different motives with, with different types of, of networks and, and with, depending on their goals and whether they keep a, a higher profile or not. I think there's one interesting area. Of research is emerging from, from a number of uh, you know, scholars, uh, particularly people who are doing their PhDs now, looking at the question of different roles, uh, who, who becomes a fighter versus who becomes a, a facilitator, a fundraiser, and you know who of those who become foreign fighters, uh, what, what types do they go looking for specific types of training or experience? Uh, that, that's been a debate as well. Uh, I, I think it depends on, on the specific cases. In, in Southeast Asia, uh, you'll, the Indonesians said that everybody who went off to Afghanistan in, in the 1980s went with the specific goal of coming back with training to, to conduct jihad back in Indonesia. And I'm not sure that that was the case for volunteers from elsewhere, from, from let's say, from Western, the few from Western countries back then. So this is another question, too, is are, are people going off uh, to not to training camps, but, but to be foreign fighters for the purpose of getting training? That they can take home rather than for the purpose of giving their all out on the battlefield. Yeah, no, and it's it's by getting this nuanced understanding and get, being able to break it down like that, we would get a would 
be able to to approach it with a with a better a better empirical understanding and be able to to develop these these uh, legislative as well as uh, intervention strategies uh, to to assist this and see if if it's if it's applicable. With regards to those legislative approaches, um, what are what's been the the variation in the legislative reactions to uh, foreign fighters? Uh, across the world like what are you mentioned Australia and Denmark uh, already what was happening there and elsewhere and has been happening there and elsewhere well Australia at least at the beginning and at least per capita uh, was was sort of the number one exporter of foreign fighters to, to Syria at least from the Western world so it, it was a big it was a big concern there um, in, in terms of returnees something that I think people outside the region don't recognize so Australia passed what I think is at least the Western world's harshest law, uh, the, the Foreign Fighter Act, back back in 2014, that not only would would bar you from returning, um, but that that would you know that would strip citizenship that had life in prison if you did return, which which is a, a harsher sentence than you would get for for murder uh, in, in Australia, and also allowed the you know the the foreign minister to uh, you know basically to to designate no goes areas of the world and say, if, if you show up in those, unless you can document a really good reason for being there, we'll consider that you were a foreign fighter and, and strip your citizenship based on that. So, you know, I, th I think initially it was Commonwealth countries that, that took this approach. Uh, Canada, New Zealand passed similar laws. Canada uh, partly rolled theirs back. Uh, other countries had, had more of a, a really a DDR approach of, of, all right, let's come back. And, and if you cooperate and didn't commit a war crime, uh, we can give you some amnesty and give you whatever reintegration services you want. The U.S. Uh, we haven't really had so many, you know, we haven't had so many people go really in terms of population size uh, or return. So there hasn't really been an approach. There have been proposals in, in, in the U.S. Congress to uh, strip citizenship, and if there ends up being a, a you know, significant attack by a returnee, I suppose those would probably move forward. But they've been. Put, you know, they've been proposed for the past decade without any action, so it doesn't seem to be a priority here. Um, obviously, with these legislative approaches, these legislative reactions, um, a lot is 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 dependent on public opinion as well. Like when it's politicians making these uh, these um, making these policies, what has the what has the public opinion been like? In relation to say the Australian uh, legislative reaction on one one hand versus in Denmark uh, on the other hand, what what's that been like? So so public opinion on terrorism shows that uh, across various countries shows that you can really never be too safe if if you're a public official proposing security measures that that people uh, will will complain about inconveniences but that they'll always want to go for measures that they think are most likely to reduce the risk of terrorism, even, even if they're inconvenient. So I haven't actually seen a lot of polling about the question of, of, of returnees and citizenship specifically, but, but I would imagine that, that most people would not uh, want to be in favor of having you know, a, a terrorist next door, if that's the way the question is put to them. Um, but, it, but again, it, it's really just like foreign fighter recruitment is all that framing and saying this is not a distant war, this is, this is a threat to you. Framing security measures, framing CVE, uh, is also about how you present it to the audience. And if you, I think, say, all right, look, if, if you're going to bring somebody back who says they're willing to cooperate, 
and we, we watch them and they pay, they pay for whatever crimes that, that we would prosecute them for. Uh, but we can use them as a, as a counterterrorism asset. Is it preferable to do that or is it preferable to do what happened to Osama bin Laden and the first generation of Al-Qaeda where we just put them beyond the reach of our law enforcement, uh, have them go off and join other rebel groups in other countries should, should we, and, and just leave them, and now especially in the social media era, leave them free to communicate to whoever they want, whenever they want, which, which of those two options is better, having them under under watch or having them out on their own, I think if you phrase the question that way, that would all that would change the, the type of result you got for the public. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's, I suppose, politics is all about how you frame it. It's all these right. policies, it's how you, how you frame it. One of the things that we do need to consider when we're looking at these, um, these, these, ways of managing uh, foreign fighters or, or dealing with it, whether it's a, a legislative approach or whether it's it's looking at it in relation to reintegration within DDR or, or, or elsewhere, is how do we actually measure success? How do we know that a, that a certain approach has been successful or not? So I got interested in, in DDR uh, because I saw a, a World Bank report uh, that there was, there was programs in the Great Lakes region of Africa in, in, in the last decade where they claimed to have reintegrated something like 300,000. Uh, they, used, they used the term normally combatants on foreign soil, but they meant foreign fighters, and sometimes they would refer to them as foreign fighters in, in the reports. Um, and, and they could be for various groups. They could be some were ideological, some were Islamist, and, and some weren't, and some people hopped from one group to another. They called it. They use this term insurgent diaspora of, of just sort of individuals going from around multiple countries with, with multiple groups, and, and so this, this idea of, of DDR of, of you know uh, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of basically just letting people, encouraging people to go home, uh, and and giving them the means to do so, uh, and, and you know even the economic assistance to do so it was was the best way, was the most effective way to end insurgencies, to end foreign fighting, uh, really. And, and a lot of countries who have not wanted their own citizens to come back from Syria are, are, were happy to spend money to tell you know foreign fighters in, in, in Africa, hey, just go home and, and, and reintegrate and don't be prosecuted. Um, when I went looking for data about these, these fantastic r results that everybody just went home with no problems and went back to their day-to-day -day lives, it turns out that, that the, maybe the records aren't uh, available, the numbers were... were um, not as well documented as some of these reports claimed, or not documented. And uh, you know, having having spoken to some officials at the, at the World Bank, they say, yeah, really successful DDR programs can in place have been implemented in places like Colombia. In, in the past, can take up to 17 years. <laughs> so I, that's something that I, I don't think uh, most Western audiences worried about foreign fighters would be able to tolerate. Saying, well, let's let's bring them back, and 17 years from now, it should be all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it's. It's it's something it's a reality check when you put it like that. It's um, but it's also knowing what to believe and what to buy and needing to to understand. Okay, who who is doing this verification? Is it being verified at all? And what can we trust? And therefore, what can be implemented in in certain situations? If you're to if you're to look forward now and 
think about where research needs to go in the future in relation to foreign fighters, what would you recommend, or where is your research taking you, but also what would you recommend to others who are looking at this area? Well, I, I think um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of postgraduate students right now doing some really interesting research. I've had the chance to, to review a couple of, of dissertations that have been submitted uh, this year looking at, and they look at past cases, they look at Bosnia and at Chechnya and others that have been explored, but they're able to find really good uh, new information about the, the dynamics of different groups going from one conflict to another, uh, or, or the, you know, what happens to the ones who perhaps have career progression. Um, again, I, I think that we have a tendency to, to say that whatever is happening now in the world today is the worst thing we've ever seen, that, that uh, ISIS is, is, is the biggest threat ever. And I, I think that our counterparts, if, if there had been podcasts in 1939, you know, would, would look at the 50,000 people who'd gone off uh, to become basically Soviet agents in Spain, uh, who would be coming back as fifth columnists or who'd gone to fight on, on the fascist side as foreign fighters and been agents of Nazi Germany and say, are, you know, are, are you crazy that you're worried about a bunch of adolescents uh, you know, with, with knives and smartphones, uh, we faced a much bigger threat in, in, in the past. And, and the fact that we historically have, you know, not seen lots of foreign fighters become domestic terrorists. The threat's bigger than zero, but I think more, more sort of individual work, look, looking at what, what happens to the ones who did is in order, uh, what happened to people who fought for groups who were not foreign fighters. One, there's not a lot, there's not enough work being done right now on, on the thousands of uh, foreign fighters in, in Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and you could argue, depending on how you categorize foreign fighters, they could be on both sides, on the Russian side, but also a lot of far-right activists on, on, on the Ukrainian side. Uh, there's not been enough work done on the, the Shia foreign fighters in, in, in Syria and the, the training that they've had. And by some counts, there were far more of them than there were total number of Sunni foreign fighters. So the, the, if we're worried about people getting battlefield experiences, foreign fighters, and what that can mean for terrorism, uh, you, you certainly have a, that potential threat, especially if they're, if they're state-sponsored going forward. But there's certainly a lot of other groups, and, and I think we have a tendency to, to engage in Orientalism to say, oh, look, uh, young women who went off to, to Syria, this has got to be some cultural thing or a religious thing. But th again, this, this happened in China in the 1940s. Uh, there, there were women who were, you know, maybe nuclear physicists in, in one case who ended up just being farmers and English teachers because they really wanted to go live in this, this new Marxist utopia. Uh, a, a lot of the, the recruitment that's done for the caliphate, the same lines, come build a fair new society where you'll be treated justly. And so I think there's a lot of work to do to go back and, and see what happened to these people because you know, a lot of, I know that a lot of them returned home, but I, I don't know what happened to them. And this, this question of lag time with attacks I really got into this, that project looking at what happened with jihadis because I wasn't able to do the historical research because a lot of the, uh, the veterans groups of, of, uh, in, in different countries, veterans who, of the Spanish Civil War, said they hadn't kept records of their membership uh, for, for ensuing decades, which, which seems unlikely for communist groups. Uh, so I wasn't able to see how many decades people stayed active with these groups, which is what I had originally intended to do. But these, these veterans groups from Spain, you know, they, the last veterans of the Spanish Civil War, uh, the last American who fought in the Spanish Civil War died a couple of years ago. But people stayed active in, in, 
you know, in propaganda capacities or in fundraising capacities for, for 70, 80 years. So not everybody becomes disillusioned. Yeah. And so it's worth finding out what happens to those people. No, I, I think this is, this is hugely important. And that, that, that whole historical contextualization, it's, it's what needs to be done. It's, it's, again, it's, as I was saying in the first series and as I've been continuing to say here, there's too much in a way a terrorist exceptionalism that there's something exceptional about what we've got going on at the moment and with the terrorist threat and the and here with the foreign fighter threat um, and saying that it's different so we have to reinvent the wheel and how we're looking at things but when you look at that those historical uh, examples you've used American Revolution the International Brigadesmen in Spain even the 1980s uh, Afghanistan Mujahideen returnees as well. All these examples, and you used the phrase in in an art in a in a draft that you sent me of a of a forthcoming chapter where you said there were more foreign fighters for Marx rather than Muhammad as well. And it's it's this contextualization can it can give people a reality check, and we can then understand. Okay, we can learn from that past. And um, but it's also in your in your article with Rachel, you contextualize in relation to. A comparison against criminal recidivism as well that the recidivism rates here are much lower uh, in terrorist populations and uh, in populations of political violence than it would be in ordinary criminology as well so it's contextualizing there yeah and i think that's one thing that's interesting about foreign fires so most people who commit sort of conventional crimes are back in, in jail within two years if, you know 50 to 60 percent across across the world really uh, and it's much lower for terrorists in general, right? It's, it, a lot of the figures you see in Western countries from some Arab states, it's like 15, 20%. If you take the really pessimistic numbers uh, from, from the U.S. about Guantanamo, anybody who's suspected of being involved in, in, in uh, you know, uh, going back to these groups, relapsing, uh, closer to 30%. It's still half for terrorists of what it is for criminals. But then if you look at foreign fighters, where, you know, the, the most pessimistic you know, range estimate is, is, is 10%, but realistically, um, it, it's probably more like 1% or less. It really looks like foreign fighters are, not that we shouldn't should ignore the threat that, that they pose, but, but that there's far less of a threat from foreign fighters than from any other sort of, uh, you know, terrorist or criminal out there. And, you know, why that's the case I can only speculate that's something else that needs research. I, I'm guessing that so many have come back documented disillusioned uh, by their experiences that that a lot of them are just not willing to to uh, you know continue on with the groups that brought them, even if that means that they lose their social networks. Yeah, no, I think that's a I think that's a really good way to to finish up today's podcast. Actually, no, I I did want to ask you one last question. As someone who used to work on uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, is there any point in us doing this academic research? Does it ever get read by politicians, policymakers, or how? what is the best way? Uh, or do, do you feel that academic research like this is having more of an impact now than it used to? Uh, yeah, I wish I could be. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for, I guess, a, a, a characteristic pessimistic answer on, on, on a terrorism talk. Um, so yeah, I worked, you know, I, I worked on, on Capitol Hill on, on national security issues. Uh, fun fun fact about me, I was actually working in the Senate office. I got the anthrax mailing uh, a month after 9/11, uh, which was a little bit closer to the sort of thing than, than I was planning to get uh, when, when I studied it in my master's degree. 
And I, I actually, you know, at the time I said, hey, I, I had actually done uh, some, some research. I had a, a big paper on, on uh, military biotech and, and the potential for it being used in, in domestic terrorism, which is exactly what happened in that instance. Uh, and, and no, nobody was really nobody was really interested in that at the time. Um, working in in government, being back in Washington D.C. now, uh, I have to say that that, that academic articles uh, that the sort that we have an incentive to publish in as as, as sort of you know full time scholars, no, those never get read by anyone in government. Uh, they do read think tank reports, and and they're more familiar with people who write think tank pieces. Than, than academic pieces. So if you want to have not only policy do policy relevant work, but to actually get read, it, it's good to try to keep, uh, I suppose, a toe in, in, in both you know, pools if, if you can. And do they listen to podcasts is the most important question. <laughs> they should listen to this one. I hope <laughs> they do. Yeah, well, we'll leave it there. Hopefully there will be uh, some people listening to this podcast. Uh, David, thank you so much for today's conversation. Uh, as always, I would encourage all listeners to go and read uh, in depth the, the work of David, uh, Rachel and others uh, in this area. Um, we only got to, to scratch the surface today. Um, there's been He's done some excellent work uh, around this issue of foreign fighters, but on, on other topics as well. So David, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for being, a, being a guest on today's episode of Talking Terror. Well, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode with David Mallet. Be sure to listen in next week where we've got another excellent guest. So until then, goodbye.